Hello and welcome to the Social Review podcast. Uh, this week, uh, I'm back, as in Eugenie. And oh god, that is awful. Sorry, Jasper. Um, okay, let's just do that again. There's a cold open. <laughs> oh no, he always does this to me. Always. You hear the one where he literally made a supercut of me going, "Sorry, Jasper," like fifty times. I, be- I believe I did. Mm-hmm. I found that very funny. Very embarrassing. Hello and welcome to the Social Review Podcast. I'm Eugenie, making my glorious return, and I'm joined by Henry today. Say hello, Henry. I would. Hello, I am Henry. I have been on a few times before. I am uh, as qualified as I ever will be by the fact I study history at undergraduate level, and I tweet at Owl Sanctuarist if you want to follow me on Twitter, which you should. Yes, I think, Henry, you're definitely on our kind of friend of the podcast level of recurring guest now, so you can hold that honour tightly to your chest, but... Uh, Henry's also kind of slightly given the bit of the game away about what we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, so Henry and I are both uh, trained historians. And um, what we really want to talk about and what we thought would be an interesting conversation to have, you know, in considering the events of the last few weeks with the proroguing and the unproroguing and then maybe a potential re-unproguing, um, and even recording this on today, the day of the uh, the Queen's speech and the state opening of Parliament, where we have a day of kind of that displays all the kind of pompous ceremony of the kind of strangeness of our parliamentary democracy and the way our constitution interacts with the monarchy and all these questions, we thought it might be interesting just to have a chat about history and the way that history as a as a concept is always informing our politics but also maybe the way in which political commentators and writers and people thinking and talking about our current political situation uh, recall the past often um, we say with the with the kind of a weary resignation of people who've had to listen to a lot of people in our times tell us about um, how uh, to understand the past you must understand the future I see I'm butchering all well but uh, you get the point uh, I think it, I think it is the other way around I think that's <laughs> Let's just pretend I was deliberately misquoting rather than uh, <laughs> accidentally. But uh, what role does discussion of history really have in our politics and how much can it really illuminate for us? So we thought, you know, this would be a, an interesting place. So I guess um, uh, my first question to you, Henry, would be, do you feel like we're, uh, we're, we're doomed to repeat the failures of the past if we don't learn from it? Just a, small, a, just a small question, you know. <laughs> yeah, just the, the the basics here. Now, I feel that the um, the problem with the failures of the past is that if you want to look at it from very one particularly bleak angle, you could say, okay, well, the past is a litany of failures. So it's what failures do you choose to learn from? And that's an inherently political question. And I feel that when people talk about learning from the failures of the past, what they're essentially arguing for a lot of the time is a kind of technocratic agenda of... Um, of kind of management and of essentially of organizing society based on them, um, organizing society in the state based on this idea that there's a, a mountain of evidence and we can just choose the, the good stuff and not the bad stuff. But I mean, that's a political assumption and it's also not one I agree with for a number of reasons, but it's a, it's a political assumption, a desperately flawed one. Like there's no rational reason to believe that. And I think that the lesson of history is actually that there's no right answer. Like, the history, the, the history of the world, to an extent, of Western society, definitely, is the history of people, well-intentioned people with a lot of evidence, making terrible decisions, which would lead to catastrophe. And also people with no good intentions and very bad grasps of the facts, making good decisions, 
to whatever definition you want for some people. So yeah, I actually don't think that at the end of the day, I think that it's about choosing which failures you want to learn from. And you can choose basically any that prove your point if you want to. But I'm curious as to what you think about the... Um, I think that there, the problem is there are certain exceptions to that. And I'm curious now, because the one which springs to mind is the really basic one, which is the one like, oh yeah, the sleepwalking to the First World War is like um, the, you know, uh, what happens when governments don't think carefully about the long-term consequences of their actions and just... Uh, individually take short-term decisions with long-term consequences. No, I think you raised some interesting points and certainly I would kind of um, amplify what you just said by uh, definitely agreeing with you, but kind of saying that I, also my my real problem of people who who seek a kind of an idealised version of, maybe, maybe idealised isn't the right word, but people who kind of raise the spectre of history and say, ah oh, yes, but... You know, we have to learn, we have to learn from the past and only through learning from it can we can we move forward and kind of craft a better future because ultimately, certainly in my opinion, um, there's no real coherent narrative message to learn from from the past. There's nothing there which can illuminate a huge, well, it's that kind of paradox where history defines, you know, history in the history of our nation the history of the peoples the peoples within our nations their interactions with each other you know, all of that is the kind of very bedrock of the foundation of our society it's it's so significant on the one hand but on the other hand you know history and events damn bloody events or whatever that quote is um are so precipitated by such small often inconsequential sometimes random um driven by personality and circumstance and how someone felt when they woke up on that morning. So obviously we can look to huge kind of structural and institutional reasons, but also, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of like, it's almost like chaos theory, you know, like there's, it's so difficult to define like what, what's the reason why certain things happened. I, an example that springs to mind is, um, you know, you think about the first world war and you think about the Black Hand assassins of uh, uh, Franz Ferdinand, you know, the, the shot that killed 30 million people um, in Sarajevo in, in 1914. But you think, you know, uh, Princip, I believe, uh, was sat in a cafe and the assassins had kind of done the wrong thing twice. Or there's a kind of, a, I've been to the uh, the Museum of Austrian Military History in Vienna and there's quite a good uh, kind of recreation of the whole the whole bloody affair. Um and you just think, wow, you know, if uh, if Princip hadn't been happened to be standing on that corner at that certain time because the uh, you know, because the car had taken the wrong turning and you know the emergency, you know, the other assassins had failed and the bomb hadn't gone off, they tried to throw a grenade. I think it didn't go off. Various things, and you think, oh, it's just by pure circumstance did kind of Princip and Franz Ferdinand end up on that corner at that moment, um, and the shot is fired, and well, the rest is history, but. You, know, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to argue that the First World War wouldn't have happened if Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated on that day in August. But I also think it's a, potentially quite a good example of just like the raw, chaotic maelstrom of circumstances which take you to a specific uh, moment happening. And obviously the ramifications of the shot are mm, the kind of culmination of those kind of institutional 
um, you know, Prussian militarism, the naval race, all that kind of thing. God, I sound like I'm reciting the A-level history syllabus here, but you know, it is true. Um, everyone should read Chris Clark's The Sleepwalkers if uh, they are interested in this topic, especially if you're interested in thinking about how institutions and kind of governments can creak, as you said, kind of can kind of creak their way into into failure. But then I was kind of insinuating that learning about that would you know, help us learn, <laughs> maybe learn something about the, the present day. And uh, I was the person who started this quite long spiel, and I've been talking for a while, sorry, by saying that I, I don't, I don't really buy into that school of thought. So it's interesting how you can get trapped in, it's almost like a rhetorical trap as well as it's so imbued in our way of thinking about history is thinking about its relevancy to the present. How do you feel, um, when you when you read an article that and I don't just mean the kind of silly articles which are kind of like oh and Brexit is the culmination of the Reformation or like whatever nonsense Ian Duncan Smith is saying this week but uh how do you feel about the kind of the use of history in that way you know if you have any specific examples or if not but just um you know kind of commentators and maybe people who aren't historians kind of dredging up history in order to make their uh in order to make an argument. I do feel, I have to say, overwhelmingly negative about it, although I suppose that shouldn't really be a surprise, especially given political... What? (laughs) I know, I know, right? I mean, the one I always think of, and this isn't relevant to any argument, but it's really funny, is Michael Gove, Theresa May as our first Catholic Prime Minister. But no, the thing about the, like, Ian Duncan Smith takes are that, like, they, they emerge from a view of history which is actually completely at odds with any kind of conservative tradition, right? Like, of course the point of being conservative is that you're engaged with history and you care a lot about the past, but, like, the reason you care about the past is because you believe that it's not because it's a guide to the future as such, but because you believe that the build-up of knowledge and uh, kind of wisdom from brought up, kind of agglutinated from generation to generation and built up in the kind of uh, systems of a society are inherently more wise and more valuable and more practically useful than the workings of any one individual. And of course, and this is an original point, but Brexit is a revolutionary project. It's not a, it's not a Burkean one. It's not a conservative one. And so what you essentially get into is this like really, uh, the weirdest, this really Marxist view of history, where you essentially say like everything is determined, everything is uh, the results of inevitable forces. And I find that very frustrating. I mean, I think you can see that in, like, the um, the Cummings takes on how he... Obviously, he is a, a big man for individual agency, what with uh, his obsession with Bismarck and also himself. But um, he is also a guy who is, I think, obsessed with, like, ah, yes, Labour lost the working class because of these large economic shifts which happened underneath the, underneath the surface. And that's inevitable. And, like, culture didn't really have anything to do with it because... If we had to grapple that, we'd have to grapple with the racism that we stirred up. So actually what we need to think about is only the economic shifts and the left behind people and that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the version that Dan Hannon does is not Marxist as much as it's weak history, which for people who haven't sat through interminable academic lectures about the history of writing history is um, essentially the like 18th century belief that History was a line uh, in which you went from being a savage to being a, uh, towards the final goal, the kind of big boss of history itself, which is uh, the state of civilization, the state of enlightenment, and essentially that all societies should or, and, you know, the enlightened West has successfully moved in this very, very simple, very linear direction towards from 
from primitivism and barbarianism into civilization and goodness. And so that's the like the Hegelian take, essentially, the, the dialectic, although it's obviously a very crude opinion. And it's now been like, there's no easier way to write history than to say, ah, yes, this narrative of the past is wrong, because it is wrong. Like, there has never been a society where the truth is improvement for everyone. It's a question. And you cannot say that the, um, the 18th century England, a country which at the beginning was still, well, no, throughout the whole period, right? sorry, I'm thinking about the 9th century, was doing the slave trade. You can't say that that was the enlightened result of centuries of progress leading towards this perfect civilization and harmony like that's clearly nonsense and you can't import that narrative into 2019 at a time when no one who seriously understands the reformation seriously thinks that anymore there's like the there's no good historical takes which deny contingency there are no good historical takes which deny particularity like there's an amazing quote which i found the other day which is um the famous ancient greek general themistocles apparently once said that his infant son was the most powerful Greek, because the Greeks were commanded by the Athenians, the Athenians by him, him by the boy's mother, and the mother by her little boy. It's like, that is true of, in its kind of, <laughs> that is true of so much of our society and history. Like, that, there, you, there are so many things where you can say, oh yeah, that's because of this weird, I mean, like, Boris Johnson backing Brexit because of his, or Michael Gove rather backing Brexit because of his university rivalry with David Cameron and Boris Johnson's school rivalry with David Cameron. Like, that is not a grand historical lesson. There is no lesson you can learn from that, and there is no lessons you can learn to stop that. That is the outcome of individuals with individual agency making individual decisions, which they deserve to have a responsibility for as well. They don't get absolved because history was working in a certain way. That's just not how anything works. Mm, exactly. Um, that kind of draws to mind, uh, I think there's that old running Labour labor meme repeated by kind of uh, wonks, like ourselves about um the the MP whose name oh is honestly eluding me at the moment who um who got drunk in the Commons bar and punched someone in the face and so was he kind of resigned from his seat which then had the the by election of Falkirk which is the one that unite unite was accused of meddling in which lead to Ed Miliband changing the Labour leadership um the Labour membership rules and introducing the three pound supporters, which then arguably was a, a considerable role in the in the election of um of Jeremy Corbyn as as leader of the Labour Party, and kind of people talk about that as you know uh this one MP um who got drunk basically and punched someone. If he hadn't done that, maybe the history of the Labour Party would have been quite different. And uh, I think that's an interesting counterfactual for those of whom who maybe uh my long winded discussion of um. <laughs> the outbreak of the First World War might have been of less interest earlier, but that one, uh, you know, has actually the same kind of rhetorical um, rhetorical structure to it, and you can kind of see where I'm getting at. But like, you're exactly right. I mean, I agree. Um, as also someone who <laughs> is recently sat through an interminable number of um, a undergraduate and postgraduate lectures and seminars about uh, what does it mean to write history and uh, engage with these topics, but certainly the role of contingency, obviously, and just the the idea that we can't we can't remove any any event from the kind of maelstrom of the kind of of the everyday i think it's interesting that you drew on the on the kind of marxist glimmer of the inevitability because i guess it almost feels like there's a natural inclination to want to be able to see history as existing in patterns and cycles and not even in the kind of um tragedy fast paradigm but certainly a a way in which um you know, we we look at Brexit and we say, ah, if only we could understand, 
if only we can understand the EEC or only really we have to go back to 1945 or really we have to go back to, you know, um, I don't know, 1918 or whatever date is plucked out of thin air. Um, do you think there's a remedy to this kind of historical comparison or does it involve hopefully just educating people a bit more about maybe, well, educating, that sounds so patronising, but, you know, like trying to bring public history into being a bit more in a line and thinking about maybe history more deeply than just uh, understand the past and you understand the present and maybe you'll even predict the future. Yeah, there's a, this leads me on to my uh, long-standing annoyance, which is the... Um, and this is going to sound really weird, and I'm kind of taking a shot at a lot of people who I otherwise very much respect. But there is a tendency to go like, ah, yes, of course, to understand the Irish border issue. We must start with 1200 when Henry II invades Ireland. And from then on, there's 800 years of incredibly complex relationships and Oliver Cromwell and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I mean, yes, you can start there if you want to explain Britain and Ireland. But you can also say... In 1922, a bit of Britain which didn't want to be part of Britain anymore because of long-standing tensions left Britain, and the result was, uh, you know, a uh, essentially a classic post-colonial struggle, and then you know the denial of civil rights to Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 1960s, and that's like that is the immediate context, and that's what you need to know. Like the Irish troubles did not emerge. Like this is my thinking. People did not firebomb houses in Belfast because they were annoyed. It's not, it wasn't the German wars of religion. The Irish Troubles did not happen because of different views on consubstantiationism. It's not like a religious conflict. And that's what people do, and it which annoys me. It's like, to understand the Irish border issue, we must first go back to the Reformation. It's like, actually, you can just go back to the fact that Irish Catholics were a marginalised group who identified with a country other than Britain and is therefore very important as part of the Good Friday Agreement that they can essentially pretend that they live in Ireland for all intents and purposes. They can essentially imagine themselves as Irish and that any kind of border really interrupts that. Like, I think that there's this, there's this tendency to push further. And there's a tendency to like, which is good in one sense because it acknowledges that any historical narrative is incomplete and fragmentary and therefore somewhat distorted. But there is also this tendency to push everything further and further back into the past to be like, well, to understand Brexit, you first must understand the 1066. It's like eventually you get into... To understand Brexit, you must understand the moment where the land bridge to Europe for, uh, disappeared in like 10 million BC or whatever. I don't care about prehistory or geology, really. So like, it's like, yeah, you can care about that. But also you can not, you can like believe that there are some uh, important historical ramifications for the present day without needing to believe that unless you understand every detail of the like, millions of years of context then you actually can uh, understand it at all and so i think that's what that's something that does slightly bug me and i think that people who are interested in gaining lessons from history often are like well you know we need to push further back to find the right lessons and it's like well do we really i'm just i'm never convinced that actually you can say like i definitely think that there's a lot and this is something where actually there's an interesting point which is that I probably wouldn't make the same point of strictly contemporary history. So, for example, to make uh, Marcus Sitonio, a friend of both of ours, uh, very happy, shout out. Uh, God, hi, Marcus. We love you. Hi, Marcus. We love you so much. Adam Tooze's Crashed is a book I read uh, read over the summer, and it's a really fantastic book. And I guess you could see it. I mean, it's on one of my history reading lists, actually. It is history, in a sense. But it's also a history of the 2008 financial crisis, right? And I do think that, yeah, every policymaker should read it and should, like, notice what happened there and not do it again. But that's because the 
financial system in 2008 is not meaningfully different to the financial system of 2019, which is a problem in itself. So like, it's not like you're, um, it's not like going back to the 16th century for lessons. So I think that, yeah, contemporary history and contemporary study is the valuable part of it. I think that where you put that line is, of course, a really interesting case in itself. And like, who gets to decide what is contemporary and what is relevant. But I guess that's the, the big challenge to my own point, which is like, read Crashed, guys. Crashed is a really, really great book. And yeah, like, I've not read it, but people say that Robert Saunders' uh, book Say Yes to Europe is really great, and I can imagine that that's very relevant for ideas about Brexit. And again, 1975, within people's memories, within people's lifetimes, that's obviously important, that's obviously relevant, like, fair play. Deal with that, uh, go into that, and what I think, actually, this is going to be my, my closing point of this spiel, the thing I wish people would do rather than pluck events from the past is take forms of analysis from history. By which I mean that the kind of, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the worst hot takes of commentators and politicians, and to be fair, this is undermined by the fact that a lot of them studied history at Oxford and Cambridge, so uh, we are terrible people to talk about this, but um, is inspired by the fact that they don't have any, not like a grounding in historical facts, but a grounding in historical ideas, if that makes sense. So like understanding or having an idea of how institutions work, of how systems work, of how power dynamics work is actually really useful. And so like, if you're saying that, I don't know, if saying, you know, Leo Varadkar is just a uh, arrogant Irish guy, yeah, then, um, then what you're saying is, um, then you're saying something a lot less interesting and a lot more wrong than you would say if you said, okay, let's analyze the, the power dynamics of this, let's analyze the, uh, the cultural ramifications of this in a way which might be inspired by what people do about like the Reformation, which doesn't need to reference the break with Rome to be meaningful. I, I agree with you. And I, I certainly, you know, you, you draw on the fact that, you know, to, to kind of flag up people who say, well, to understand the quote-unquote Irish problem, really one must return to the Plantagenets. And you say, well, well, yes, but also no. <laughs> and uh, I, I think certainly I would agree with that. And, you know, a personal bugbear of mine now, which I, I shall stand upon my soapbox and uh, orate for a short period of time and just say that as someone whose historical work was deeply imbued in the understanding the parliamentary politics of the early 17th century, so the uh, the parliaments of James I and Charles I between 1603 and 1641, I have to say that the discourse surrounding the proroguing I found particularly um, uh, difficult to listen to, um, mainly because I feel like you had a lot of people who maybe were reading kind of simplistic comparisons, you know, probably from Wikipedia summaries about the um, about the, the kind of two different events and were actually, um, you know, there isn't a huge amount of, there isn't a huge amount you can say that would compare, you know, the parliament of, say, uh, you know, Charles I's early parliaments before they were, before they were um, not recalled during the, the personal rule, but to say, you know, that that is a somehow like a comparable situation to what, what we had when parliament was prorogued, and neither was the unproroguing, quote, a kind of great reclamation of uh, parliamentary sovereignty. Um, you can't compare uh, the way parliament functioned 
uh, as it is now, most importantly, because, you know, the electorate is so fundamentally different that it's a completely different piece, you know? What concerns me is maybe that in these kind of quite simplistic comparisons that often actually the the nuance of understanding both of you know, people talking about the past in a way which is um, talking about history and not coming from a particularly learned point of view or even, you know, having read even a few books. Um, so, you know, this 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 image of, say, the early 17th century has been perpetuated, which is simply wrong, which bugs me on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't really think it's particularly useful for our understanding of um, the present either. Like, I don't I, I don't understand why kind of comparing Boris Johnson to Charles the first is like a particularly useful um, kind of a particularly useful image there or. You know, apart from if you're just going for a kind of rhetorical flourish, um, and you know, especially as we're gearing up into a into a future election, which I think will feature quite a lot into this kind of people versus parliament uh, rhetoric, I think we're probably going to see chat in response, which kind of draws on maybe this kind of imagery of uh, the civil wars and things like that, and just how I don't know, dispiriting that is to someone who spent quite a lot of time <laughs> studying the civil wars, and and really just what the the important thing maybe is for not not to say oh you can't talk about this if you don't know about it because that's obviously that's obviously like quite extreme but just to say that maybe a few more historians could be consulted before um you know we get our we get our latest uh um you know terrible take in the opinion pages of whatever uh newspaper it might be you know comparing Boris Johnson to Boudicca or, or whatever the greatest horror that will be inflicted on us and talking about breaking with Rome or something like that um if if you if you had one one thing that you as a as a as a practicing historian um could you know offer up to our our beloved listeners um in in thinking about the way that our relationship with history kind of in the in our public in our current political discourse you know what would be your what would be your parting remark or even potentially maybe even a recommendation for something that people should read that might give them a quite interesting you know insight into historiography and maybe whether whether it's a book about understanding the past itself or you know another book like crashed uh you can't just say crashed again that's my my only rule here but <laughs> uh marcus read crashed no um <laughs> what i'd like uh, the thing is, the, the the real thing I love, and this is not something that individuals can do, so um, sorry, individuals, but the main thing I love is for the school curriculum to get better. Everyone has sat through endless nonsense spiels on the Tudors and the Nazis. And, like, obviously, in particular when it comes to the Nazis, it's incredibly important to learn about it. But the way it's taught is often, I think, very flawed, which is why I called it nonsense spiels, not because I think it's unimportant. And also, like... You can do more. You can set things in context. You can say, like, you know, Nazism isn't an exceptional German phenomenon. I realise that's a subject of a great deal of controversy in itself, but, like, teach the controversy. Like, teach the fact that that the mainstream view now is, as far as I'm aware, is that, you know, fascism is not something which is particular to other places far away. And teach that by moving on and doing more things, like, make the curriculum better and make it less obsessed with the Tudors and then more people like and care about history which is a benefit in itself I would argue but also you can have an informed a more informed discourse whether or not it will be a discourse reflected inflected by history is another question altogether but you can have one which has some kind of grounding in why certain comparisons are inappropriate and why certain um certain ideas 
should be rejected out of hand. And that's something where I think that, you know, in particular when it comes to more contemporary history, that's something which can be very useful, I'd say. And so, yeah, I think that's the book which immediately springs to mind in terms of in terms of popular history, which is really good. Actually, I'm going to recommend I'm going to recommend two books, which are firstly Neil McGregor's book about Germany, which is called Germany, originally enough, subtitled Memories of a Nation, which is uh, a book about you'll never guess. But it's also a book about um, the concept of memory and how history affects places and how people's relationship to history changes. And obviously Germany is a really interesting theatre for that kind of discussion. And he also has this interesting take, which I think is probably not correct, but is really interesting, that essentially the Holy Roman Empire is um, is why Germany is now okay with um, a very strong international uh, structure in form of the EU. Um, so ah, that's... I agree. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't... I literally don't know anything about uh, the kind of Holy Roman Empire's functioning, to be fair. So like, that's as much the issue as anything else. But like, anyone, that's really... if anyone in the comments says neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, I will actually sound off. So uh, uh, <laughs> do not at me, Voltaire. Anyway, continue. Sorry, tell us yes. more about Neil McGregor. Sorry, that's <laughs> a, but that's yeah. So that's like that. I mean that 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 take is defended very artfully in that book. Very very elegantly done. And his whole stuff is about how essentially Germany relates to its the trauma of its past and how it related to its past in the 19th century and romantic nationalism and all that kind of thing. It's also an incredibly easy and good read. It's one of the, it's one of my favourite books, I think. It's just objectively wonderful. And then the other really good book, the book which made me really enjoy history to start with, so I feel I should recommend it, is um, David, wait, I study history at the university where I teach, and yeah, I can't pronounce his surname, David Abulafia, his book, The Great Sea, which is about the Mediterranean throughout history. And the reason I recommend that is because it's a really good way of accessing and thinking about the fact that history doesn't work in simple ways. History works in processes and networks and exchanges. And sometimes the units you think of when you first think of history, like the state, like the nation, are not units with that much use or relevance to certain people's lives. And so Abulafia, who I've just pronounced the name a second way, so we can say that I'm being willfully inconsistent and um, well, I've got one of them right which is his take is essentially that like you can't really understand Italy history Italian history or Spain's history or whatever without understanding the history of the Mediterranean as a unit and importantly that's a unit which under which includes Egypt and Turkey and Israel and well you know the Ottoman Empire would have been a quicker way of saying all of that but like Jewish and Muslim populations and essentially that uh, history which is based History, which is based around providing a guide for the, for the future, generally in the popular mind and in popular discourse, has the equal and indeed crucial function of excluding certain people, of presenting an other, of defining the history you're not. When you have people who are you know, adamantly pro-Brexit talking about the exceptionalism of Britain, that's one end of it. Equally, people talking about, um, people talking about like Britain as this idealised liberal country until 2016, I think, fall into the same trap, which is like, actually, don't set up exceptions, don't set up others. Sometimes they're relatively harmless, sometimes they're not the worst things in the world, sometimes it's like, um, you know, joking or regional exceptions, and sometimes there is some truth in them, sometimes there is genuine merit in them, like you can say that the, the, the English experience throughout history has been very different, the Welsh experience or the Scottish experience without being like shamefully prejudiced or anything 
But what you really mustn't do, to my mind, is do that without firstly thinking about how you're doing that. And secondly, you can't do that. And so many people do do that in a way which positions um, in a way which positions others, particularly the subject of people who have traditionally been the subject of oppression and discrimination through history as the other, as the category you're excluding. So, for example, like, um, I mean, to be fair, like there's a lot about the European project itself, which I find not problematic on the kind of classic, oh, freedom of movement is racist grounds. That's a nonsense argument for nonsense people. But the, um, the so for example, the fact that the Polish government in 2005 is really keen on the European constitution declaring Europe to be fundamentally Christian, like that is objectively bad history and bad politics for now. It's, it's on every level it's bad. So yeah, that's my, that's my point. That's my long winded point of saying, read David Apalafia's The Great Sea, really good popular history book. And remember that actually, like, however much we've tried throughout our lives, throughout our, our history and throughout our lifetimes, we've seen it to define, you know, Eastern Europeans and uh, Muslim people and people of color in every way. And, you know, women and LGBT people and everything and disabled people and everything along those lines as historical others. It's a really important thing to avoid because that's how we get into very dangerous roads in this with this stuff. Yeah, what a what a kind of interesting spate of recommendations. I would only it's interesting when you were speaking, I was thinking about if I was gonna bat some stuff out there and I was actually in a book I think would be a very interesting compliment to um to the the mcgregor memories of a nation which uh, was attached to a really excellent exhibition at the british museum which actually um still tours every now and again so you might uh, it might randomly be revamped again um things i learned about recently but um i would actually recommend a book by a kind of historian and writer philosopher called david reef called in praise of forgetting which is a kind of i think to a certain extent deliberately quite provocative book it's quite short so it's quite an easy read but um yeah it's definitely not too dense very accessible um but really about his his argument that he puts forward quite stridently which is that you know we we are consistently told we should um we should learn the mistakes from the past and we should never repeat it blah 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 but he actually argues quite strongly that there are certain points and certain times when actually um to to willfully um, forget about events is actually the only way that a kind of society can can move past specifically kind of recent trauma and actually the the specter of memory can be a, a kind of great hindrance rather than um rather than a kind of a, a way in which to kind of keep memory of oppression alive so he talks about the truth and reconciliation commissions in south africa uh, especially kind of post-conflict in Northern Ireland, it talks about the com- the memory of the Confederacy and what that means in um, in America now, and uh, you know, lots lots of different examples. But um, it's quite interesting and a kind of interesting counterbalance to, particularly if if you feel like you've maybe listened to this conversation and feel a bit taken aback by maybe our kind of quite casual and easily kind of easily done uh, writing off of um, you know. Well, I think probably to most people who maybe haven't um, studied history at university, certainly, but the kind of um, the way we kind of disregarded this idea that we have to learn from the past, quote unquote, um, for kind of something that's completely different, I would say a book that I think about, I think about it quite a lot is um, is uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man. And that's not because I would be recommending the kind of contents of it. And certainly I think 
uh, I mean, Fukuyama is very interesting, um, uh, a very interesting person, but it's a book I think about a lot because basically the, the thesis of the book is he wrote it in the early 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union was that the, the end of the Soviet Union was the end of quote-unquote history and that, you know, the kind of great struggles that had defined human history up to that point were over. There's a kind of the triumph of... Um, the triumph, the kind of what you referred to as uh, something that doesn't really exist, but the kind of enlightened, secular, Western, kind of rational, liberal people had kind of won, and that battle was over. Communism was destroyed, Soviet Union was over, you know, the capitalism of the 90s was in full full swing, um, and all this kind of thing. Um, and now, obviously, you read it, and it seems... Um, quite trite uh the idea that history ended in the 1990s and he, d- he didn't mean that nothing would happen ever again he didn't mean there'd be no more events he just meant that there'd be nothing on the kind of scale i think of what happened in the in the 90s that kind of that kind of monumental change in the in the structure of society he said that there would never happen that could never happen again there was nothing that could happen again and you know, instead he makes these kind of quite spurious arguments about how the the future of uh, the only the only future of society will be intensifying conflict between quote unquote the East and the West. And um, yeah, I think Fukuyama. There's a lot to unpick in there. Is especially for a man who was such an avowed anti-Marxist, his kind of pivot to. Uh, I, I think he did an interview. I think it was with the New Statesman. Actually, uh, it was either earlier this year or last year. In his latest book, which a full full disclosure, I have not read, and I'm not particularly interested in reading it. Um, he's kind of had this pivot to Marxism, but um, it's very interesting. But um, certainly, you know, reading the end of history, I think will give you is a really is really interesting to read, mainly because of the the manner and the way in which it has just been completely disregarded. It's almost like in reading that, you can think about. Um, you know, how you can write something with such conviction in 1993 and read it in 2019 and it all seems quite, <coughs> you know, the idea that secular, secular liberal democracy has kind of triumphed um, feels silly now, really, you know, in the age of Trump and the Hungarian, you know, Orban and Netanyahu and all the rest of it. But, you know, if you want to think about historical writing and the concept of writing and actually how we it can be um as much as you can write these books which are kind of triumphant and epochal they can also be uh they can also see their feces kind of crumble down i mean fukuyama is probably is more of a sociologist than a historian so <coughs> i accept any criticism people might have of that um that choice but i think you know if you want to think about things from a slightly different perspective and think about the failures in writing as much as the successes um that's an interesting book to chew over and maybe um, uh, you know, think about read some interviews with Fukuyama because he's a, an interesting person to put it mildly. But uh, but yeah, um, yeah. Any any more any parting uh, any parting shots there, Henry? Any any bits of history you just want to quickly uh, shove in now while we've got the chance? Quick, we own the podcast now. So uh... <laughs> the thing I thought it would be quite nice to end with if, to get the last word isn't just because I think you're completely right. But I actually think that Fukuyama has always got a slightly harsh rap for the end of history because, and it's partially it's his fault for titling it something so provocative and attention grabbing. But like Fukuyama, Fukuyama's thesis was wrong, and we we know that now. His thesis that um, 
it's not as wrong as people say it is, but it's not, you know, it's also not right. Liberal democracy did not win out. There was no kind of, um, and I don't want to caricature his argument because that's exactly what I'm criticising people for doing, but there was no, um, there was no consensus around, or at least whatever consensus formed was pretty quickly shattered. And the, the thing which he didn't see coming was, well, the two things he didn't see coming were economic instability and um, Islamic uh, terrorism and uh, that's his that story and like I think there are a lot of the uh, takes on the end of history which rightly note that it was you know from 9-11 onwards it's very hard to take seriously as a as a as a uh, as a, an ongoing idea but I do also think that like Fukuyama is not really it's not a ridiculous claim it's a it's a wrong claim but it's a not a ridiculous claim and I'd actually I'd like to read the end of of his original essay because I think it's really beautiful and it's something which you know, people never realize and people never talk about but yeah, it's worth, it's probably worth reading out the, like a bit of his last paragraph, because I think it's both really beautiful and really important here. The end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, and the satisfaction of consumer demands. Such nostalgia fact, will continue to fuel competition and conflict even in the post-historical world for some time to come. Even though I recognise its inevitability, I have the most ambivalent feelings for the civilization that has been created in Europe since 1945, with its North Atlantic and Asian, offsh Asian offshoots. Perhaps this very prospect of centuries of boredom at the end of history will serve to get history started once again. And thus concludes another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you very much to uh, Eugenie and Henry uh, for coming on this week and talking about history and being unequivocal history nerds. Uh, but it, it was a really interesting discussion and I hope uh, you all learned something from it. Um, always worth talking about history even when the Social Review's mission statement is the future of socialism and discussing and debating what that is going to be. As usual, the music you heard was Sweet of Vermouth, composed by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons, and if you enjoyed it, then subscribe to the podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, uh, tweet it, share it, tell your friends, etc, etc. Thanks for listening once again, and I do just want to say a special shout-out. Uh, this week, this weekend actually, is the one-year anniversary of The Social Review. Um, so, thank you very much to anyone listening to the podcast who's been reading the website uh, for that length of time as well. Um, so, thanks for listening, and have a good week. You will definitely hear us again next week. Goodbye. Okay. Would you would you maybe mind just re-saying that last chunk of what you know that that last? I would not. I would not. Quote. Um, yes. Just because it would just save you know um, having to re-record at a later point. Just because you just kind of. Jasper. <laughs> Jasper. Yes. Sorry, but... <laughs>